Welcome to the First Church Orlando podcast. Here you will find recordings of weekly sermons, devotions, interviews, and seminar recordings from the First United Methodist Church of Orlando. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the podcast. Our reading this morning comes from the New Testament book, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 9, beginning with verse 31. So what are we going to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. Won't he also freely give us all things with him? Who will bring a charge against God's elect people? It is God who acquits them. Who is going to convict them? It is Christ Jesus who died, even more, who was raised, and who also is at God's right side. It is Christ Jesus who also pleads our case for us. Who will separate us from Christ's love. Will we be separated by trouble or distress or harassment or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we are being put to death all day long for your sake. We are treated like sheep for slaughter. But in all these things, we win a sweeping victory through the one who loved us. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or anything else that is created. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I know not everyone in the room comes from a background of Methodism or the United Methodist Church, uh, but today we're going to talk a little bit about Methodism. We are, after all, a United Methodist Church formed in the Methodist tradition. Methodism as a movement began in the 18th century with a man by the name of John Wesley, and we should mention his brother Charles. Both John and Charles were raised in the Church of England in a devout Christian home. Their father was a pastor, and their mother was quite an accomplished Bible teacher and leader in the church. They were born and formed in the Church of England, Anglican faith. John and Charles both went on to Oxford College, where they were ordained earlier in their 20s as Anglican priests. They were deeply shaped by Christianity, so much so that even as a very small child, John was rescued from a fire where the family, in a home where the fire lived, family lived, uh, removed from the second story quite miraculously, which led the family to believe that John had been saved by God 
for some extraordinary purpose. He was raised to believe that. And yet from an early age, even into his early ministry, John struggled to believe that God really loved him. He had a hard time believing that his salvation in Christ was actually secure. You may know that one of the reasons Methodists are called Methodists is that John and Charles and some of their closest friends were so methodical in the way they served and worshipped and studied the Bible and, and lived out their Christianity. It was a term of derision by their peers. You're so Methodist. You're so methodical. I can't help but wonder if part of that methodical approach to Christianity was rooted in John needing to prove to God and maybe to himself that he was worthy of God's approval and grace. In an attempt to deepen his own faith experience, John signed up to become a missionary in the American colonies going to Savannah, Georgia, where his expressed intent was to meet a Native American and convince them to become a follower of Jesus, believing that if he could convince someone else, maybe he could also convince himself. Two years later, he left Savannah as a complete failure as a missionary. He left kind of quickly under a cloud of shame, never having met a single Native American. On the ship back to England, they encountered a terrible storm, which led John to believe that the ship was going to go down, he was going to die, and in the midst of his own panic, he observed a group of Christians called Moravians, who were praying quietly, calmly, with deep faith, and he saw in them something that he knew that he lacked in himself, a spiritual confidence, a spiritual steadiness. And so on returning to England, he began spending time with Moravians in hopes of finding what they seemed to have, including one night when he was invited to a Bible study on May 24th, 1738, in a place called Aldersgate Street. It was during a Bible study on the book of Romans that he experienced something he'd never felt before. Later in his journal, John would write, I felt my heart strangely warm. I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. There's no question that before his Aldersgate experience, Wesley thoroughly understood and knew theologically, intellectually, doctrinally, that salvation is a free gift of grace. There's nothing we can do to earn it or deserve it. It is a gift of God. Wesley knew this in his head. He knew that he had done all that was necessary for salvation and more. He certainly knew about God's unconditional love at least theoretically. But you probably know the old expression, the longest journey is the 18 inches from the head to the heart. Sometimes what we know in our heads doesn't become something we know in our hearts until something profound happens. That, I think, is what happened 
that night on Aldersgate Street, Wesley made the journey from his head to his heart. Something that night happened that he had a physical reaction to what God was spiritually doing inside him. He felt his heart warmed, strangely warmed, and he said. And with it he received what he would later call the gift of assurance. And assurance was given me that God had taken away my sins, even my, mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. All that had been strange to him, confusing to him, threatening to him spiritually, now seems to have been resolved. Many believe that it was his Aldersgate experience that gave birth to the Methodist movement. On that night, somehow, some way, God broke through into Wesley's life. And he experienced what we sang moments ago in the old Fanny Crosby hymn, Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story. This is my song. That certainly was what John felt after that night. Wesleyan scholar Steve Harper, who's a friend of our congregation, has written... The Spirit of God began to move in Wesley's heart, showing him that God isn't interested in a vague and personal relationship, but is interested in a heart-to-heart, life-to-life relationship that connects the unique people, connects to the unique people that we are. As you're well aware, our series this summer has been Knowing God. And numerous times we've talked about the difference between knowing God intellectually and knowing God experientially, relationally. Today we're returning to that theme of experiencing God in a, an experiential kind of life kind of way. Today we end this series on knowing God and I want to focus on just these two experiences Wesley had at Aldersgate Street. One, the experience of his heart warmed, and two, and discovering what it means to have an assurance of faith. Now you may remember in June we talked about the Wesleyan quadrilateral, those four ways of knowing God through scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. Wesley's heartwarming experience certainly falls within that a kind of experiential knowledge. He came to believe that we can experience physiologically, emotionally, the presence of God at work among us. For Wesley, it was that experience of his heart having the sensation of warmth. But it can happen otherwise. Have you ever had a heartwarming experience? Have you ever, in a time of prayer or perhaps here in worship, ever shed a tear? Is there ever a a song or a hymn that that you have trouble singing because it gets caught in your throat, the emotions are so strong? Maybe it's kneeling here at the altar as we receive communion. Maybe it was, of all things, during a sermon. Maybe you experienced something new, never before experienced on a, a Christian retreat or on a mission trip. You ever gotten goosebumps in worship? 
You ever had those hairs on your arm raise up in worship? You ever felt kind of a a pressure in your chest that something is moving you? Have you ever felt a tingling sensation? Have you ever thought maybe, just maybe, it's your body reacting and responding to the Spirit of God working within you? Or have you just dismissed it? There's nothing more than maybe just a sensory response to an emotional stimulation. Wesley believed those moments when our hearts are warmed and those tears are shed, that God is moving in an experiential kind of way. That these kind of physiological, emotional experiences are normal for Christians. They come from a divine place and they're available to all of us. There's another Wesleyan scholar by the name of Ted Runyon who taught that Wesley's faith and the way he lived out that faith was built on three pillars, or you might say like three legs of a stool, making it solid and stable. The first leg of that stool Runyon called orthodoxy. Orthodoxy simply means right or correct belief. And Wesley certainly was steeped in the traditional doctrines of the Anglican Church and Scripture and in the creeds. But then Runyon says the second pillar or or leg of the stool is what he calls orthopraxy. Ortho means right. So orthodoxy means right, doxology, belief. The second stool is, second leg of the stool is orthopathy. Right, pathos, which means feeling or emotion. Wesley believed that there was a right feeling. And then, of course, the third, I've gotten a little out of order here, is orthopraxy, practice. Wesley believed there were certain practices that were correct for a Christian, going to worship, attending a small group, reading your Bible, praying, tithing. These three all go together. Of course, we need to believe the right things, orthodoxy. Of course, there are certain ways that are normal and and appropriate to behave as a Christian. We call that orthopraxy. And then Wesley added to it this third belief in feeling and emotion, orthopathy. Runyon defines orthopathy as the new sensitivity to and participation in a spiritual reality that marks genuine faith. You see, it's all three. It's not enough to just believe the right things, though that matters. It's not enough to just do the right things. That also matters, but it's not the only thing. It also includes an emotional response on our part. It's all three. This belief isn't unique or limited to Methodism. Pope Francis has recently written, Faith is born of an encounter with the living God who calls to us and reveals his love, a love that precedes us, one that we can lean on for strength, one that helps us build our lives. Rivi Nishama adds, just feel God's love in whatever form it comes to you, which could be your child, mate, friend, or pet, or the sky, or mountains, or the joy you know in being alive. In other words, just feel it. Just engage God in your faith with your emotions. Now, let me be really clear. Remember, Wesley did not say the whole of our Christian experience is based on our emotions. Those who did so in Wesley's day were referred to as enthusiasts. 
The last thing we'd want to be is enthusiastic, right? <laughs> Sounds pretty good to me. But the point was that, that faith is more than just emotion. Remember, Wesley's quadrilateral includes Scripture as foundation and then added to it tradition, experience, and reason. Even our experiences, even our emotions must be rooted in sound doctrine. And so the gift of assurance isn't just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's more substantive than that. Prior to Aldersgate, Wesley was consumed in fear. He had all of the right information. He had all of the right head knowledge. But it was insufficient for counterbalancing the fear that gripped his heart. But something happened at Aldersgate Street that changed that. The experience of having that heartwarming moment gave tangible weight to what he knew in his head, but had trouble grasping with his heart. The gift of assurance that Wesley received and said we can all receive was merging that doctrinal truth, that head knowledge with experiential knowledge, which rescued Wesley from that spiritual trap of fear. Revealing God's love both to his head and his heart. Oftentimes Methodism is referred to as the religion of the informed mind and the warmed heart. It's not one or the other. I've mentioned to you numerous times in the past that I didn't really grow up in church. My family attended a a much more conservative church, uh, just enough for me to really hate it. Uh, we stopped going at an early age, and I was not sorry of that. Uh, but I did, throughout my junior high and senior high years, attend a church camp with my cousins in Tennessee in the mountains. Now, I need to be very clear. I didn't go to church camp for church reasons. I went because I thought it'd be fun to spend a week with my cousins in the mountains. I went because they played volleyball and we went swimming and we went canoeing and there were girls there to meet and that was good for me. At best, I tolerated the religious stuff and sometimes even resented it a bit. Well, one night, we were walking back to our cabin after a late night worship service. We were up in the mountains. It was a perfectly clear night. The sky was pitch black, but because we were away from the city, you could see every star. It was a gorgeous night. We were surrounded by tall trees being up there in the mountains. And my friend Scott, just kind of out of the blue, said, how can anybody look at that and say there's no God? How can anybody look at that and say there's no God? I don't know if I had actually said it out loud, but but I had been thinking, how can anybody believe this stuff, this fairy tale about God and heaven? But when Scott said that, it felt like the exact opposite of what had been in my heart. And something happened. I would not say that my heart was strangely warmed that night. But it started. God somehow found a way to break in, and that continued. A year later, I was baptized at that same camp late on a Sunday night in a very cold river, and the rest, they say, is history. Wesley's belief in assurance, I believe, is rooted in today's scripture reading from Romans chapter 8. 
And Paul's simple question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who is against us? If God is for you, if God is for you, who can be against you? And I guess I I should just say, I don't think that that he qualifies the statement with the word if means that Paul is unsure. I think he could have chosen to use the word because. Because God is for us, no one can be against us. Paul was quite confident, assured if you will, that God is fundamentally for every one of us, no exceptions. God is on our side. I don't think Wesley knew that before his experience at Aldersgate. I don't think he knew that God was for him. Maybe he understood it intellectually, but he certainly didn't know it in his heart. And he certainly feared the opposite, that maybe God was against him for some reason. But Paul knew. And Wesley discovered, I'm convinced that nothing, nothing, somebody say nothing, nothing, can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he goes on, not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or anything else that is created. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I like the way the message says it. With God on our side like this, how can we lose? Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. I'm absolutely convinced that absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our Master, has embraced us. In this series on knowing God, you may have noticed that we made a a shift about midway. We started with these traditional ways of knowing God, scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. But as we came to July, we shifted to how do we know ourselves? You see, those two things go hand in hand, knowing God and knowing ourselves. We can't know God if we have an inaccurate understanding of ourselves. And likewise, our own sense of self will be distorted if our view of God is inaccurate. And so we've been focusing these last couple of weeks on how do we know ourselves so that we can know God? One of Wesley's problems was he had an erroneous understanding of God, a God to be feared, and an overly complicated understanding of himself, sure that somehow he was outside of God's love. For Wesley to come to a place of assurance, he had to deal with his spiritual fears, which were for him a trap. Richard Rohr says, we cannot deeply know ourselves without also knowing the one who made us. And we cannot fully accept ourselves without accepting God's radical acceptance of every part of us. What a great and clear explanation of assurance. We cannot fully accept ourselves without accepting God's radical acceptance of every part of us. Sounds an awful lot like what Paul said. I am absolutely convinced nothing can get between us and God. 
From time to time as a Methodist pastor, I'm asked, what, what's unique about Methodism? I mean, as compared to other kinds of Christians, Baptists and Presbyterians, Episcopalians and Catholics, what makes Methodists different? And, and I usually start by saying, well, there are differences, but more often than not, we have more things in common with our Christian cousins of other faith traditions. But that doesn't mean that the differences aren't real. That, after all, is why we have so many denominations. But usually then I'll say, what drew me to Methodism is our unique emphasis on grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor, God's unconditional love given to us freely. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what's been done to you, God loves you unconditionally and is working in your life, leading you to eternal healing and wholeness. That's true for all of us. Now saying that Methodists have a unique take on grace may seem a little misleading. After all, every Christian tradition talks about being saved by grace. But I believe at least in one way, our understanding of grace is a little different. There are some churches you can attend where grace sounds a lot less like love and more like something a begrudging, angry God doles out to those who've jumped enough hoops if he has to. Whereas the Methodist understanding of grace is that we don't have a God who is angry or wrathful or begrudging. We have a God who begins in a place of love. We have a God who loves everyone and never hates anyone. We have a God who wants the very best for us even when we're willing to settle for less. We have a God who tells people over and over, you don't need to be afraid of me. And we believe in a God that wants to be experienced, who wants us to know experientially His love and grace. So I'll return to some of the questions I asked earlier. Do you have the gift of assurance of knowing that God is eternally on your side? Do you know that God loves you, specifically you, unconditionally? Do you know that there's absolutely nothing, nothing you can do or could be done to you, nothing, no event, no occasion, no failure, nothing can separate you from God's love? Has your heart ever been strangely warmed? Now some of you may very well say, yes, I've experienced that, I cherish that. Others of you say, I don't know what you're talking about. Let me be clear, a heartwarming experience is not a litmus test for whether you're a good Methodist or not. We're not going to get in the practice of asking the heartwarmed Methodist to come forward and the rest of you sit in the balcony until you get it right. The point of the gift of assurance and the experience of a warmed heart is that it's a gift that God wants to give you to deepen your faith. To strengthen your faith so that you can live it more confidently in the world. If you've never experienced your heart strangely warmed, why not ask God for that right now? Let's pray.
And so, Lord, for all in the room who have experienced that deep, heartwarming experience, we thank you for that gift. Renew it in us again and again and again. And for the one or the many who've never experienced you or acknowledged or recognized an experience of your presence working in us, would you give us that gift? Warm some hearts this morning, O Lord, or at least begin to. May we have the gift of assurance of knowing that we know that we know that we know that you love us and nothing can ever separate us from that great love. We pray this in Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and that you will listen again in the future. If you enjoyed today's message, we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and share it with others on social media. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If this podcast is a valuable resource to you, we invite you to give to this ministry by making a financial contribution at firstchurchorlando.org forward slash give. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.